Let's start with the scene of activity. Jesus, as Mark chapter 13 opens, he and the disciples are leaving Jerusalem. We're in the week of Passion. Jesus has been staying the night, more than likely at the home of Mary and Martha and his buddy Lazarus. It's a two-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethany. As they're making the way, it's Tuesday at dusk. The disciples look back. They're crossing down the Kidron Valley, making their way up the Mount of Olives. They're looking back over, and you can imagine that as the sun is setting, they're in the east looking to the west, that what laid before them, this site, the temple itself, was awesome. It was awe-inspiring. And over the last hundred years or so, the temple had really become an identifying, a connecting force for the Hebrew people. It was their sole focus of national pride. It was a beautiful, awesome, glorious structure, this rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple by Herod the Great. It was an awesome, awesome building. And the disciples are bragging. They're looking at Jesus. You can sense a, a, well, a wellspring of pride and nationalism as they're talking to Jesus, as they're pointing out the various structures. But in response to their gloating, Jesus bursts their bubble. He bursts their bubble by prophesying concerning the future of this incredible, awesome, awe-inspiring temple. We're told that Jesus said to them, you see these great buildings, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, we should note, and you should remember, that Jesus here, right from the beginning, is speaking both prophetically, he's speaking of a future event that has not yet occurred, but he's speaking concerning the prophecy very literally, because we know from the first century Jewish historian Josephus, we're given an eyewitness account of Titus Vespasian's sacking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. And what do we discover from the eyewitness testimony provided? That things not only occurred, as Jesus said they prophetically would, that the temple would be destroyed, but they happened as literal as Jesus said. Jesus is clear, isn't he? Not one stone will remain upon another. And as we discovered through reading Josephus's history, that literally not one stone was left upon another when it came to the destruction of the temple. Now, in reaction to this prophecy, the disciples, they're chilling out on the Mount of Olives. They're probably taking a break from the hike. And they come to Jesus privately and they ask two questions. Now, one of the questions we have here in Mark 13, verse 3. They ask, when will these things be? Speaking, obviously, of the, the destruction of the temple. And they ask, what will be the sign when these things, the destruction of the temple, will be fulfilled? When will these things start and when will these things finish? That's question number one. Now, for context and for our help in understanding Jesus' reply, we should also point out a second question, not included in Mark's text, but included in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, because there we're told that in following the first question, the disciples asked, what will be the sign, not of the destruction of the temple, but what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus responds with a sermon, 
known as the Olivet Discourse. Olivet because he's on the Mount of Olives. This sermon, for context, for reference, is also included in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, as well as Luke chapter 21. I encourage you, little homework, this week to read both of these other accounts because both of the other gospel writers include some further details that help with context. Now we mentioned in our intro that there are two ways of understanding the Olivet Discourse. And we're not gonna get into the particulars, but it's important to at least establish the blueprint for two ways that people look at this sermon. First, there is the preterist viewpoint. Preterists believe that the events of the Olivet Discourse occurred in 70 AD. Now their logic is as follows. Is the, if the Olivet Discourse is a prophetical response of Jesus to the disciples' question about the future of the temple, then isn't it only logical for us to conclude the prophecy included in the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled when the temple was destroyed? And that's a reasonable, logical argument. As a matter of fact, it should be pointed out. For the majority of the church's history, beginning with about 300 AD all the way up to about the 18th century. This view of this sermon, that it was fulfilled when Titus sacked Jerusalem, was the predominant view of the church, mainly because Jerusalem didn't exist. It wasn't in the hands uh, of of the Hebrews. It was in the hands of the Muslims. Uh, The temple wasn't there. Instead, uh, Muhammad, they had erected two other shrines uh, to Allah. It was It was not that Jewish people were dispersed. There was no Hebrew nation. There was no Jewish people in the sense of having their own national identity. And so they're looking at all the future prophecy that includes Israel, all the future prophecy that includes another temple. And they're looking around the theologians and they're like, we don't see the Hebrews. We don't see the temple. Jerusalem is in the hands of the Muslims. So let's find a better understanding of end times prophecy that will, well, let's just say exclude the Jews and the temple. Now, there are two fundamental problems, though, with their assertion. First, it is impossible if the events that occurred in 70 AD connect back with what Jesus predicts concerning the Olivet Discourse. So Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is predicting what will happen in 70 AD. The problem is that you can't connect the events. We have an eyewitness of what took place in 70 AD. And we find that it doesn't correspond with what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. Now, you can make a case very loosely, but the biggest problem they have is, well, a singular event known as the abomination of desolation did not occur in 70 AD. And this is the first problem. You can't connect the history with the prophecy. So you either have to conclude that the prophecy was very vague or incorrect, or that Jesus wasn't speaking concerning that particular event. The second problem with this assertion is that it, I think, inappropriately assumes that Jesus' sermon here was intending to address both of their questions. How many times, and we've been traveling through the Gospel of Mark, have you noticed that the disciples come to Jesus with a question? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't actually answer their question. He gets to the heart behind the question. He gets to deeper issues involved and he addresses those things, never really addressing the particulars of what they were asking because oftentimes the disciples' view was so short-sighted. I believe 
that though their question desired to know more about the destruction of the temple, Jesus instead focuses his response on their greater concern. What will be the sign when these things will happen, the destruction of the temple? But then they ask, what will also be the sign when you come back, when you establish your kingdom, when the end of the age will occur? If you're looking at the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, what's the, the deeper, heavier concern? Well, the end of the age, Jesus' second coming, the kingdom. Now, there is a second way of understanding. The first is that the events occurred in 70 AD. The second is what we'll call a pre-trib, pre-mill perspective. Pre-tribulational, pre-millennialists. They believe, and I know there's some big words, but they believe that the Olivet Discourse, and when I say they, I will include myself, that this sermon would be fulfilled in five future events. That they don't find their fulfillment in 70 AD, but still we're waiting for their fulfillment in five events. First, the rapture of the church. Secondly, the great tribulation. Thirdly, the abomination of desolation. Fourthly, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And finally, the millennial reign or a thousand year reign where Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. Now, obviously the biggest challenge to this position is that if the Olivet Discourse does indeed find its fulfillment in the end time scenario, then shouldn't we conclude that Jesus taught that the church would go through part or all of the tribulation? Jesus is talking to the disciples. These guys would be the pillars of the church. Shouldn't we conclude, okay, if Jesus is talking about the end of things and he's addressing the disciples, providing them exhortations, encouragements, that they would go through the tribulation. Now, there are three fundamental problems with this assertion. First, the context for the disciples' question represented a concern for what? For Israel and their temple, not the church. If Jesus was answering their question with an exhortation to the church, an entity that didn't exist yet, that the disciples had no idea would exist, that no one had any idea was coming 50-something days later, that would be a little confusing. The church at this juncture is still a foreign concept. Their context is Israel and the temple. Secondly, you can't ignore the other biblical passages that clearly indicate the rapture of the church will occur before the tribulational period. Now, we're not going to go into that. We went into great details in our intro study. We'll get to it also at the end of our examination of the Olivet Discourse. Thirdly, the Olivet Discourse, and I think this is one of the most important reasons. As a matter of fact, I think it's so important, it establishes the context by which we're going to look at beginning with verse 5. So this is important. I believe that this is all future because if you take the events of the Olivet Discourse, matter of fact, the the verses we're going to look at this morning, you will find that they parallel, that they travel succinctly, almost verse by verse with Revelation chapter 6. Now, why is that important? In Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, Jesus provided the Apostle John with an outline for the revelation, for the book. The outline is as follows. First, write the things which you have seen. And we know, as far as the book is structured, that those things were chapter one. 
where John is exiled on the island of Patmos. He's worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day, that being Sunday, and Jesus appears to him, past tense, the things he had seen. And chapter one describes this glorious revelation of Jesus, this description of his person. But then Jesus tells him to write the things which are. And the present tense you find in Revelations chapter two and three, and that's not an accident because in those two chapters, we find Jesus writing seven letters to seven different churches. Now, I I think in addition to Jesus obviously writing to us, scripture revealing the Lord's thoughts to us, and and no doubt Jesus writing to actual literal churches, Ephesus and Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamos, etc., that Jesus in writing seven letters was writing to the church. Seven in numerology is always uh, indicative or an indicator of completion. So Jesus is writing to us. He's writing to individual, localized, specific churches, but he's actually writing to the church, the church age. And on your own, you can study these seven letters because you'll find that each letter in order follows along with a certain period of church history. It's a fascinating study. So if chapters four through 22 record future events coming after the church or the completion of chapters two and three, because then Jesus says, write the things which will take place after this. After what? After the church. You should note that Revelations four and five describe the heavenly scene, the bride of Christ, the church with the groom, with Jesus. It's an awesome scene. A scene, by the way, that you and I are in. You know, you're actually recorded in scripture. When the heavenly hosts begin to sing out to the Lord, your voice is included. It's an awesome thought. So the church is in heaven in chapters four and five. And then in chapter six through 22, we then get a description of the things that would come after the church or future tribulational events on the earth. You should note that beginning with chapter six in Revelation, you will find zero mention of the church. No mention. And instead of the church, you have Israel, you have the temple, not the believers in Christ. So, that being said, verse five. And Jesus, answering them, he began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many, But when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen first. But the end is not yet. Once again, Jesus is addressing the end. You'll see these things happen. The end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, the first thing that Jesus addresses, the first thing that Jesus tells us to look out for is he warns of a great deceiver. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying I am he, and will be successful. They'll deceive many. Now, for starters, Jesus is warning us of a deceit by those who what? Who come in my name. It's a specific deceit. The origins of the deceit come from individuals 
claiming to be Christ. Biblically, we refer to these people as antichrists or replacement Christs. That's what the word anti, doesn't mean that that these people are anti-God. It means that they're trying to replace God, the opposite of that. So they're trying to stand in the place that only Christ should stand. Now, I'm going to give you a few few additional passages of Scripture. You can jot them down. I'll read them for you. That explain a little more concerning these replacement Christs. 1 John 2, verse 22, we read, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He, the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ, is Antichrist, who denies the Father and Son. So multiple people can be Antichrist. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, but you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard, which was coming, which is now already in the world. And then in 2 John 7, we're told that for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so with these verses in mind, you should note two things. Jesus is speaking, I believe, of two forms of deceit, both indicated by the same word, which is why often this idea of the Antichrist gets blown out of proportion, gets twisted, gets warped, and doesn't really explain the heart behind what it's trying to illuminate. Two forms of deception. First, I think Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, it's easy to say that he's speaking of a general deceit. We should be careful not to be deceived by anyone or anything that seeks to replace the given locale that Jesus should have in our hearts. The world is full of antichrist. Things, people competing for Jesus's place in your life. We call them idols. The spirit of antichrist is present. It's active in the world, trying to replace Jesus with something else, knowing that these things never suffice but many are deceived. We look at a culture, very deceived. But I also think in regards to there being a general deceit, that there's also a specific deceiver that Jesus is warning about, and we also find John warning us about. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says this, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now, many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, do you see what John did there? It's interesting. John says, there are many antichrists at work, even presently, trying to do what? Replace Christ. But keep your eye out for, for whom? For the, a definitive the, antichrist, a specific and individualized person that would be a great deceiver. John who interestingly enough, is where in our story? Sitting on the hillside listening to Jesus. He's present for the Olivet Discourse. He affirms that many antichrists would come, but he also warns of a specific person. The antichrist is coming, by which we know what? 
that the hour is late or that it is the last hour. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the apostle Paul warns, let no one deceive you by any means for that day, speaking of the second coming of Christ, will not come unless the falling away happens first. The son of man, the, son, the, 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 the man of sin, the son of perdition is revealed. And you should note, there's only a couple places. As a matter of fact, really only John refers to this great deceiver with the phrase antichrist. And in other passages, and in Revelation, he's referred to as the beast. Paul calls him, even in this passage, the man of sin. He calls him the son of perdition. Though there have always been the spirit of antichrist at work in the world, in the last hour, there will be a rising, an ultimate manifestation of this spirit, the spirit of deceit, when an individual man, a single man, claims to be Christ, and many will follow him. Though speaking generally, I also believe that Jesus is affirming that in the end times, there will be this counterfeit Christ who will not only dominate the world scene, but in whom the Jewish people in particular will see as their Messiah. Orthodox Jews today, they hold to 13 core principles. To be an Orthodox Jew, you have to affirm these 13 principles. Today, when you look at the Wailing Wall, they're in their full garb. They're praying. And one of their foundational tenets, as a matter of fact, number 12 on the list, states this, that I believe with full faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he tarries, with all that, I await his arrival every day. Today, the Jews, the religious Jews, the Orthodox Jews are waiting for whom? Well, they rejected Jesus. And so they're still, they have their eyes open. They're looking for a Messiah, someone who will come and say, I'm the Christ. And they will fall prey, that they will follow this man. They will esteem him as the Christ, as their Messiah, something Jesus is warning them not to do. Now, I said that all of this follows succinctly with Revelation. Revelation chapter six, verse two and you might want to flip a few pages over just to follow along, kind of go back and forth just to see how this all works. But it's interesting. Okay, so Jesus says, do not be deceived by whom? Someone who's going to come in my name, who will do what? Who will deceive many, speaking to whom? The Jews. And then we find the first seal judgment there in heaven. Verse two, we're told that behold, a white horse and he, a man who sat on it, he had a bow and a crown of authority was given to him, and he went out to conquer. Many scholars believe that following a great future conflict that will occur between Israel and more than likely Russia, as described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Antichrist, a European leader, will rise and bring peace to the world. And how will the world be deceived? It's really only speculation because it's yet a future event. But I think Joel Rosenberg provides an interesting indicator. He says this, there are people in our world today and unfortunately in our political system that do not believe in evil. They have a modern, Western, secular mindset. They don't believe evil exists. They are exactly the ones who are in danger of getting blindsided by sweet evil, because they are not prepared for it. The Antichrist will rise 
with promises. Following his promises will be fulfillment. And yet we find that they will be deceived. Now the second thing Jesus mentions, that following this great deceiver would be what? A great war. But when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, the end is not yet for, following this period of peace or rumors, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The second seal judgment found in Revelation 6 verse 4, we're told that another horse following the Antichrist, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. War. War is nothing new to the human landscape. One historian, Will Durant, he said this, war is the one constant of human history and has not diminished with civilization, has not diminished with democracy. And the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. And yet, this future conflict described by Jesus, elaborated on by John, will be a conflict unlike anything that has ever come before it. Now, admittedly, the atrocities committed in World War I were dwarfed by World War II. We saw war on a scale that had never been seen in the history of the earth. And yet today, though we might look back to World War II and World War I and think we're not capable of that anymore, oh, we are. We are because of the sophistication of our weaponry. With the invention of thermonuclear weapons, it's been said that we are only one bomb away from complete worldwide destruction. Do you know that only one American Trident submarine carries enough firepower that it eclipses the entirety of all of the firepower that existed on all sides during World War II. One Trident thermonuclear submarine carries enough firepower that if you were to take all the munitions of World War II and make it into one bomb, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough. One submarine on one side carries that kind of firepower. Let me tell you what the top four military spenders are for 2013. The United States of America will spend $682 billion this year on military. That's 4.4% of our GDP, which is 39% of the entire world total. China comes in second with $166 billion. 2% of their GDP, or 9.5% of the world total. Now, that's up, by the way, 11.2% from 2012. It's projected to rise another 10.7% for 2014. China is actively building up arms at a rate that no one else is doing. Russia spends $90.7 billion, or 4.4% of their GDP, 5.2% of the world total. U UK, 2.5%, 3.5%. The 15 top countries, in regards to military spending, spend 81% of the total. 15 countries in the world have 81% of the military. According to Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, that's a mouthful, 
2013, concerning military expenditures, they said this, that the worldwide money spent on war preparations are an estimated $1.765 trillion one year, or 2.5% of world GDP. Now, you might think 2.5%, that's not a big deal. Think of it this way. $249 a year per person on the globe is spent on military development. We spend $4 per person on UN peacekeeping efforts. So on the world, we're spending $250 on preparing for war, $4 a person to keep the peace. Which means what? That war is on the horizon. James Madison, in 1975, he said this, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it compromises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies, and these precede debt and taxes, known instruments for bringing many under the domination of the few. So Jesus says, watch out, for you're not deceived, because what will happen? Nation will rise against nation. There will be war. This next thing that Jesus says, he continues by saying that following the deceiver, following war, tracking with Revelation 6, would come earthquakes in various places, famines and troubles. Luke 21 adds another word, pestilence. The third seal judgment, Revelation 6, 5 and 6, I'll read it for you. Behold, a black horse, and he who on it, who was on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of, of barley for a denarius. Following war, following this global conflict, three things will follow, according to Jesus. First, there will be inflation. Imagine the effects of global inflation that for the most part makes our money obsolete. I'll be honest, if I don't have money to go to the grocery store, I'm gonna have a hard time with food, which is why we'll load up in the pickup truck and drive out to the rinky farm, hunker down for this foreseeable future. I have no idea how to grow food. Many of you, if you can't go to the grocery store or the meat market, are gonna be in trouble. When inflation hits, the effect, it's gonna nullify our money. The most extreme case of inflation our world has ever seen took place in 1946. It occurred in Hungary. The cause of the inflation was really the residual effects of World War I and World War II with a Great Depression that specifically hit the agricultural department. Monthly inflation rates in 1946 in Hungary were 13.6 quintillion. That means that prices for goods and services doubled every 15.6 hours. That means you could have gone to the grocery store and bought a carton of milk for five bucks, gone back 15 hours later and it was 10. 15 hours later, it was 20. By the next day, it's 30. It's just doubling every single time, every 15 hours. Zimbabwe, 
in 2008 had a monthly inflation rate of 79 billion percent caused by government mismanagement. Prices doubled every 24.7 hours. Inflation is a very real economic problem. And following great war, following great promises from a deceiver, the first thing we see is inflation. The second thing will be famine. In 2012, Dr. Ira Heflin presented a keynote at the 12th World Summit of Nobel Laureates. The summit took place in Chicago. And he gave a keynote on his findings of a report he authored called Nuclear Famine, A Billion People at Risk. He continues to say that the global impacts of limited nuclear war will have on agriculture, food supplies, and human nutrition. Now, in his keynote, a Nobel Laureate, he said this, he outlined the devastation and decade-long worldwide famine that would follow even a small-scale nuclear incident. He reports, this is 2012, that following a dirty bomb, the actual death toll following the famine could be one billion people globally. And following famine, Luke tells us pestilence. In 1343, the bubonic plague swept across most of Europe. Eight years, two-thirds of the population of Europe was infected. One half of those infected died. The death toll was 25 million. In 1918, the influenza pandemic, which, by the way, was H1N1, infected over 500 million people worldwide with somewhere between 50 and 100 million people dying. That was 3 to 5% of the world population at the time. Harvard scientists have recently projected that the next H1N1 flu influenza could kill an estimated 250 million people. One scientist warns, he says, with the rise in disinfection, disease can spread in localized environments and evolve to cause greater problems. With travel from the localized area, the pathogen can then move worldwide. This fact is particularly important when one thinks that almost 100 years ago, when we had the 1918 pandemic, it could take months for a disease to circumnavigate the globe. Today, it can be accomplished in a moment. Moreover, with more individuals traveling than ever before, some 1.4 billion air travelers per year, the opportunity for a pandemic strain to spread is greater than it's ever been. Jesus says that there will be inflation and there'll be famine and there'll be pestilence. He's saying that this tribulation will be greater than anything the world has ever seen. Now the fourth seal judgment in Revelation 6 verse 8 explains what the culminative effect of these things will have. We're told that behold, a pale horse, and the name given him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed him. And power was given over them, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. I don't want to understand what the beast of the earth is referenced to. Think for a moment the ramifications of what John's saying. That from the war and the pestilence and the famine and the inflation, all these things to follow, that one quarter of the earth's population will die. Today, there's 7 billion people on planet Earth, meaning that 1.7 billion 
will die. Let me, let me give you some numbers to wrap your brain around that. In North, Central, South America, including the Caribbean, there are 942 million people. Canada, United States, Central America, all South America. It's all dead. Caribbean, all dead. That's still not there, though. You then have to kill off Northern, Western, Eastern, Southern Europe, which is another 740 million people. That means you can travel the entire North and South American peninsula, find yourself in Europe, walk all the way to Russia, and you won't find a single living soul. That only totals 1.68 billion, not still the 1.7 we estimate. And what's even more incredible about Jesus' description and the sealed judgments of Revelation is that we're told that these things are not even the final event. This is the warm-up act. The disciples asked for a sign, right? A sign of his coming, a sign of the end of the age. Jesus continues by saying that everything he just laid out was what? It's very clear. He uses this phrase, are the beginning of sorrow. This phrase, the beginning of sorrow, was a common term used in the day to describe labor, describes labor pains. And Jesus's point is this, the progression towards the end of the age won't happen immediately. We're still waiting for it. But rather when it starts, it will follow the progression of labor. And I think most ladies know how that will roll. It starts slow. It speeds up. As it speeds up, it gets more painful, more concentrated. The closer you get to delivery, the more intense and fast things occur. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the whole book opens. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, John, things which must shortly take place. And many people have been confused. confused. Well, these things didn't happen shortly, soon. That's not the word in the Greek. It means that when they begin, when they start, they begin to roll out quickly. But Jesus says in verse nine, but watch out for yourself for they will deliver you up to councils and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must be first preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand. Or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not of you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death. Father, his child, and children will rise up against parents, cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. It's easy to see how these words would provide encouragement to all generations of Christians who have experienced persecution. Obviously, the generation of Christians sitting there on this hillside would be facing an intense persecution over the next several years, and no doubt they would come back to these words and find encouragement in them. It's been said that since the beginning of the church, since the birth of the church, 50 million Christians have been martyred for the name of Jesus. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary says that an average 
of 159,960 Christians worldwide are martyred for their faith each year. Right now, we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are facing execution for their belief, for their faith in Jesus. I ran across an article this past week. It was actually tweeted out by Pastor David Guzik. And the title of the article is Christian Tragedy and the Muslim World. I'm going to do something a little different. I just want to read a little bit from this article because I think it puts in context persecution in a way that we as Americans have no idea of what's occurring right now today. Few people realize, the article opens, that we are today living through the largest persecution of Christians in history. Worse than even the famous attackers under ancient Roman emperors like Diocletian and Nero. Estimates of the numbers of Christians under assault range from 100 to 200 million people. According to one estimate, a Christian, check this out, is martyred every five minutes. And most of this persecution is taking place at the hands of Muslims. Of the top 50 countries persecuting Christians, 42 have either a Muslim majority or have a sizable Muslim population. And then the article goes to list country by country. The persecution, referencing data, specific events, provides quotes. He summarizes his article this way. He says, unfortunately, the century-long flourishing of Middle Eastern Christians has created chronological confusions and intellectual pitfalls for Westerners who take the hundred-year lull in persecution as the norm. In fact, that century was an abnormality. After World War I, traditional Islamic attitudes and doctrines began to reassert themselves, a movement that accelerated in the 1970s. The result is the disappearance of Christianity in the land of its birth. In 1900, 20% of the Middle East was Christian. Today, that number is less than 2%. There is an extermination of Christians taking place today. And no doubt, we find Jesus' words, an exhortation, an encouragement. When facing that moment, don't worry about what you're going to say. That there'll be special grace granted by the Holy Spirit in your time of need. But in context, though applicable for us all, I think that Jesus is still speaking of yet a future group of believers. Now that is where we get a little confusion. Because we think, well, wait a second, the church is out of the tribulation. The church is gone. So how could this be an exhortation for Christians? Well, you overlook the reality that there's ample biblical evidence to suggest that following the rapture of the church during the seven years of tribulation, there will be people that will be coming to saving faith in Jesus. That there will be converts. The fifth seal judgment, not by accident, following our progression, is referred to as what? As the cry of the martyrs, following right along. Though the church has been removed from the earth, according to Revelation and according to Jesus, though God's focus is on Israel, his work of redemption is still active in the midst of judgment. And I see great grace in that, don't you? Revelation chapter 7 tells us that God will ordain and seal 144,000 Jewish males to be evangelists 
sent to minister specifically to the nation of Israel. Not your neighborhood, door by door. In Revelation chapter 11, God sends two witnesses who evangelize to the world from Jerusalem during the first three and a half years of tribulation. During the tribulation, during all of this death and pestilence and destruction, during great deceit, there will still be the seed and the remnant of faith. Understand, Scripture tells us, and Jesus seems to affirm, that there will be a revival during tribulation that will be met with a persecution unlike anything the world has ever seen. Under the authority of the Antichrist, this great deceiver, everyone will be forced to make a decision to either worship him as God or show allegiance to Jesus. You either accept the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast, or you reject him and face immediate execution. The religious climate of tribulation will no longer allow ambivalence. In our first study, we concluded things by providing an exhortation, you know, an encouragement of how the study of end times should apply to the believer. And our main point was what? That knowing how things end should do what for us today? It should help us prioritize what should be most important. That doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we can include our time doing, but our chief focus should be being found by our King faithful with the ministries he's entrusted to our care. But this morning, our exhortation here in conclusion is a little different. In today's climate, it is completely permissible, if not actually celebrated, for there to be religious neutrality that you can play the fence. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. A little spirituality to make yourself feel good about the partying you did the night before. One foot in, one foot out. It's okay. You know, all religious systems, and when I say religious systems, I mean beliefs concerning a superhuman controlling power, whatever that might be, very vague term. But all religious systems have as a basis, the idea of exclusivity. Now, Christians get hammered for this all the time, don't we? That we say, well, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That yes, okay, I will affirm that all roads lead to God. It just so happens that a lot of them, from that point forward, find themselves with judgment. Only one leads to salvation, and that is through Jesus. And Christians get hammered for that, right? We're intolerant. We're bigoted. But the Muslims believe the same thing concerning Muhammad. Every religious system has at the core this idea of exclusivity. Now, our secular world today, it claims to have evolved beyond absolutes that there is no exclusivity, that everyone can believe whatever they want to believe, and as long as you're sincere in that belief, all's good. But the problem is we've given a little glimpse into 
the actual full manifestation of our secular world's evolution. Because there will come a point that the world belief will also find itself exclusive. You either believe in the Antichrist or you die. Or you die. Today, you're given the freedom to choose A, choose B, or choose not to choose. But please note, it will not always be that way. As a matter of fact, the day is coming soon when your options will be extremely limited. Today, people must make this decision. This is the decision facing you today. Will I forsake the world and live my life for Jesus? I mean, that, that, that's, that's the decision that we face. Do I want to live for the world or do I want to live for Jesus? I'm going to forsake the world and I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. But understand, in the end, people will have to make this decision. It's not, will I forsake the world and live my life for Jesus? It will instead be, will I forsake the world and lay down my life for Jesus? Because you will not have the option of living in freedom. Today, will I live for him? But tomorrow, your decision could very well be, will I die for him? And there are some people that consider, they think, well, you know what? When the rapture happens, I'll believe. You know, I build my, my house of cards. Okay, if the rapture happens, and boom, all my buddies disappear in the twinkling of an eye. It's at that point I'll give my life to Jesus, I'll forsake the world, and I'll start living for him. Okay, great. But understand that the religious climate will be entirely different then. Your decision won't be, will I live for him? Your decision in that day will be, will I die for him? Let me ask to the person who's thought that, if you can't live for him today, how do you think you'll be willing to die for him tomorrow? To me, that seems silly and illogical. There will be no longer ambivalence when it comes to Christ. You'll be forced to make a decision. Now, from this point forward, Jesus will then start talking about what the actual sign is, but for the sake of time, we're going to leave that to next Sunday. So, Father, we thank you so much for your word and the exhortation it provides, a heavy exhortation it provides. Lord, we love you.